Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you um, for just kind of being on this wonderful journey with us. <laughs> we are your host. Uh, my name is Jordan Porter, joined with the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg. Hey, girl. <laughs> hey. It's been a whirlwind <sighs> week. It has been a whirlwind week. If you are on our newsletter list, you know why. It has been a whirlwind week. Um, yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a whirlwind. If you guys have been on our, especially if you've been on our wait list, like in the in the our newsletter, we um, invited a few people people from our wait list. We invited you guys um, to come <laughs> check out the membership site that we created. And we invited a few people in to help kind of test everything out, make sure this technician IT department over here called Yvonne, uh, make sure that, you know, I set up things appropriately. And, you know, there, there were, there were a few things people pointed out that I had to already fix. So thank you to people who, who pointed those things out. Um, and then, yeah, Jordan and I have been answering messages in there and kind of figuring out the membership site ourselves. So it's <laughs> it's been it's been uh it's been kind of exhausting in in a good way. In, a little but, bit, yeah. Yeah. So uh it, it's fun. We've got a couple of weeks where we're going to really kind of work on it and get things settled down. Jordan is being amazing and working on like all the course stuff because again, we have the race approval. So we have to make sure that that's all set up appropriately. And so it's, it's, it's fun. I'm, and I'm just, a, just a disclaimer, we are veterinary technicians. <laughs> exactly. We're not web designers. <laughs> We're not, uh, I mean, we weren't until this last couple of weeks, online course creators, but apparently we are now. So yep, yep. <laughs> it has been a learning experience. So if you would like to be part of the membership and be on the wait list, uh, just go to imfvt.com. So internal medicine for vet techs is basically what it stands for. imfvt.com. And you can click um, to join the wait list. And as soon as it goes live, which should be the end of August, 2020, um, you will be able to join. So, um, yeah, so you can see what we've been working on. If you, uh, head over to imfvt.com. Yeah, but kind of getting in. So we did have a couple of reviews still that are trickling in, which are still so wonderful. We do appreciate this. Um, Danielle CVT said, love this podcast. I've become addicted to this podcast and I've shared it with my team and my vet tech friends. You are informative and entertaining. Thanks for all the great info. We're entertaining. <laughs> Personally, when I was editing last week's episode, I was pretty entertained. <laughs> I was laughing at ourselves. I want to say 
because I, I have questions for you too. So this is this is fun. This is a this is like a two-parter because there's questions involved too, which is kind of cool. So um Tuesday Allen did a review and um hers was love the podcast, love listening to the shows on my hour. Oh, I'm sorry, my hour commute to work definitely makes it go by quicker. Like I yeah an hour commute. I've been there. I, I feel your pain. I'm sorry. I think Jordan sometimes yours is an hour. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we get it. Uh, it helps break down on more understandable terms and makes it interesting, especially when you can apply it to the cases at work. Been in the field for eight slash nine years on the job training, working to get my RBT boop, boop, online. So love listening to you both. Definitely vet tech role models. Yeah, I like that word. I'm like, that's so cool. Uh, I did have a question. At what point in your career was the turning point that made you decide GP was not for you? And what made you decide internal medicine was where you wanted to be out of all the specialties? I love that this is in the review that she has questions for us. (laughs) So Jordan, you first. What point did you decide GP was not for you and why internal medicine? I mean, it was probably about eight years in to being a vet tech and I just like was super burnt out at my last practice. I had like, we kind of had like a bad falling out with every, like my doctor and stuff there. And it was kind of one of those moments where like, that was the moment that I was going to leave veterinary medicine Mm. altogether. Like I took, I, I didn't work for two weeks. I was applying to just like human medical offices to like, really dang yeah, to work as like a receptionist, I was, I was done. And then it was kind of like a fluke that on my Indeed thing, it popped up like specialty um, hospital, like looking for technician. And I was like, well, that's like, that's something that I've never done before. Like I'm good at GP, but like, I didn't feel like I could grow anymore mm-hmm. in GP, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but this was also before I was super aware of VTSs. Right. Um, yeah. And so, but it was still one of those, like just stagnant I felt stagnant. Like I said, I was ready to be out. So then I applied and this was the only vet clinic I applied to was the specialty hospital um, in the internal medicine department. And it was one of those things where like, I didn't really know that the internal medicine department existed. What is this thing? (laughs) Yeah. So I applied and then I started just researching and I was like, this is perfect because I don't like surgery. (laughs) Like I'm like, I liked diseases and just like patient care, which is in my opinion, like internal medicine. So that was the only vet clinic I applied to. The rest were like all human medical offices. And then I don't know, I think from like week one, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I want. This is perfect for me because there was room to grow. And it was like a challenge that like, I wasn't good at yet. Mm. So it was nice. That's crazy. What about you? So it's funny because, um, when I was in tech school, like I had my, my, my career like goals. And one of them mm-hmm. was I wanted to work, I wanted to work at UC Davis to be a teacher mm-hmm. basically. And, and so I was like, I want to be a teacher, hopefully at UC Davis. Um, and I was like, or, well not, or, and I want to, at the time my company was called VMS, which was veterinary medicals, um, specialty, specialty or services. I can't remember. It was VMS. That's all I remember. We just called it VMS. Um, and I was like, I want to work in specialty. 
and I want to get a VTS because I had heard of a VTS because one of my teachers was actually VTS in anesthesia. And so I was like, what is this thing? And so, you know, I was like, I want to get a VTS at some point. And I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to get a VTS in. I just knew that I wanted to get a VTS at some point. So I worked in general practice, but I've, I've actually, this is really weird. I've never worked in a GP with less than 10 doctors. So the GP I was at was 13 doctors. Um, and then all my other jobs have either been teaching or specialty. (laughs) So, um, so then I, you know, I, I, I kind of was, I'd been at my general practice for about seven or eight years. And I was like, you know, I kind of, I feel like I've outgrown the practice and there wasn't a lot of things that I could do other than go into management. And I just, I really didn't want to do that. So I ended up, um, working for a, um, tech college. So a veterinary technician program locally. Um, I didn't end up at Davis, but I was still teaching. Um, so I did that for about three or four years and then realized I really missed being like hands on in practice. Mm -hmm. And so then I applied, um, for the company I'm at now, which used to be the place that I wanted to work for, but now it's like all the specialties rolled into one. Um, but I still didn't know what department I wanted to be in. So I, I interviewed for surgery. I interviewed for emergency and I interviewed for internal medicine and they have three different locations. Um, and so I got offered emergency at the clinic closest to me, internal medicine at the one just a little bit further from me. And I had to, you know, I had to really think about it and just be like, okay, if I do emergency, I, you know, I had done overnights. I'd done all that stuff at my GP and I was like, do I really want to do overnights? Do I really want to do weekends and all that stuff working emergency? I'm getting older. (laughs) Like I'm not getting any younger. And so I ended up getting into internal medicine and then I've been doing it for eight years. (laughs) So it's funny because I still, I still wonder you know, do I want to get another VTS? And if I do get another VTS, what would it be in? And then I'm like, why, why would I want to do that to myself? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, but I've definitely thought about doing it. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in internal medicine. Yeah. It's a really long winded way of saying where we came from. Right. Like it's, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. It is interesting just kind of how it like, like fell into place. I think it sounds like for both of us, like it was just one of those things where we're like, and we're done, but wait, <laughs> there's more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because I feel like internal medicine for vet techs came kind of came out of my being like, I'm done with veterinary medicine, <laughs> which is really sad. I was like, I'm done. And then I decided to create this company <laughs> which thank and god now you did like, i like it again right, <laughs> right. <laughs> i mean that's so. a really good question tuesday uh i know i've seen you on our facebook page um or if you want to send us an email i know you said you've been in the field for eight to nine years and you're working on getting your rvt but just let us know like what triggered you to start working on your rvt after so long in the field especially when like mm. just mm-hmm. given the way things are like it's not always a requirement like but I'd like to know. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, God, that's, that's a sticking point, right? Because there's so many amazing technicians, well, veterinary assistants, I'll, I'll use appropriate terminology for this conversation. So there's, there's so many amazing veterinary assistants that have been on the job training that, you know, they, they have a ton of skills and they have a ton of intuition that, you know, a brand new RBT out of tech school doesn't have, but then a brand new RBT out of tech school is going to have some skills and knowledge that a seasoned on the job veterinary assistant isn't going to have. So I think, you know, I think Tuesday is going to marry both of those together and be an amazing technician. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I mean. Like, and it's, it's one of those things where like you can, I think right now you can kind of tell that the tech world is changing. So if you're an on the job tech, than like, or an on the job trained veterinary assistant with these skills, then you know that like at some point it might be a requirement to actually be licensed and it might be mandated. And so Mm -hmm. like, just get that under your belt. But I I just want to know what, is that what triggered you to start going to school? Or is it just because you did want to learn more thinking that maybe you don't know what you need to know in the veterinary world completely? I mean, everything's changing. Or at eight or nine years, you know, is it just that you want to up your game? Congrats either way. Like Like, I'm super. Yeah. Either way. Like that's awesome. Instead of like switching careers, you're, you're, you're up in your game, which is awesome. So, um, and not only that, um, Tuesday and Danielle, uh, please send us emails so that we can send you stickers because I love both of these reviews. Yes. And we have stickers. (laughs) <laughs> anyway thank you Tuesday for the questions um because I you know my I like telling the story as to how I got where I am because it's <laughs> it's very very interesting um but <laughs> this week moving into the episode we are going to be discussing shocker the kidneys but um <laughs> how why and when protein is lost through the kidneys so protein mm. losing nephropathy uh we touched on it a little bit during our basics episode about how like the filtration system works and when when it stops working like where you start losing proteins at um so yeah this week we're going to be talking about protein losing nephropathy so short term pln it's actually a broad term that indicates a disease for, mm-hmm. i was always taught it's technically a symptom of disease um, it's mm. not really a disease specifically. So mm. it indicates disease of the glomerulus that leads to protein loss within the urine. Um, mm. Mostly the glomerulus. There can be disease in other parts of the kidney. But again, if you go back to um, the episode on our kidney basics, we talk about how the proteins are filtered like through the, the glomerulus. Um, and protein losing nephropathies include glomerular nephritis, glomerulopathy, and amyloidosis are the big three that can usually lead to PLN. Um, so briefly kind of touching back on the anatomy and physiology. So the glomerular, I have a hard enough time saying glomerular um, the glomerular mm. membrane or the filtration barrier has three la- three layers, the fenestrated endo- endothelium, the glomerular basement membrane, and the podocytes. So the podocyte layer actually has a slit diaphragm between the interdigitating 
foot processes. So the podocyte layer, <laughs> layer that is perhaps the most important layer in, protect, in protecting against proteinuria. Interesting. So, so the feet keep the proteins in. Yes. So both <laughs> size though and charge um, selectively within the protocyte layer prevent excess protein filtration. Hmm. So it allows proteins to come out, but not too many. <laughs> yeah. And this is all like um, electrical charges and, and yeah, ions. And I mean, this is molecular size. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because we're talking about like um, uh, albumin's the biggest one, right? Like albumin yeah. is the biggest protein that we think of. Um, but there are some proteins that are a little bit bigger than albumin, which is kind of crazy, but, um, and that's where the, the filtration kind of helps with keeping, keeping proteins in that we need. Yeah. Um, and the vast majority of these proteins that pass through that filtration barrier are actually taken up through the proximal tubule. We talked about that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. and then when, when all those in the loop of Henley, we talked about that. And we talked about how <laughs> they had like, they were not like a perfect circle. They had all the different, like, what am I trying to say? The, the Oh, like the finger fingers for the extra cellular or extra surface area villi villi um yeah. so when all the receptors are bound though the remaining proteins in the filtrate pass through into the urine so all the receptors are bound yeah so when all oh. the receptors have pulled the protein that they are supposed to pull the excess is then yeah filtered out yeah interesting all right cool and then we talked about the GFR, glomerular filtration, filtration rates. Rate, yep. So glomerular hypertension causes proteinuria, and this is just due to an increase in single nephron GFR enlarging the pores within the filtration barrier, and in turn, ultrafiltration of protein occurs. Which makes sense because if you have, like, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of what I can equate it to, but if you have higher pressure, like, any small opening, especially like, especially if you've got stuff behind it, it's going to stretch because of the excess pressure. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to make it so that bigger things can pop, pass through it. So again, because proteins are usually larger molecules, you know, the bigger that opening is because of the excessive pressure, like just kind of opening everything up, then the, the, um, proteins can get through. Yeah. So I think of it like pressure. a tea bag. Like when I have a tea bag and then like I'm trying to squeeze out like the extra tea of it. Like I <laughs> yeah. like I wrap it tightly like around my spoon to try to like squeeze it out. Yeah. And when I squeeze it, then like sometimes I'll tear a little hole in it and then I get super upset because then I have little bits of tea leaves in my <laughs> tea. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because you put pressure on it. That is an exact yes. Yeah, see? Um so just kind of discussing this a little bit more, the glomerular fluid is a filtrate of blood. We talked about that. And then the glomerulus is permeable to proteins. So, and that's based on weight, size, shape, electrical charge of these molecules. Um, it's also influenced, it's influenced by renal hemodynamics. So again, which we like, talked about, I think yep. in that episode, mm -hmm. um, the glomerular barrier is negatively charged. So proteins that are more cationic or positively charged 
and have a phys um, or at a physiologic pH such as albumin, because we talk about albumin mostly when we do mm -hmm. PLN stuff, are more likely to be able to enter the urine um, or are more freely filtered than more negatively charged proteins. Hmm. So um, the major influence of whether proteins will be normally filtered tends to be the weight of the protein. So we know that like size and shape and electrical charge, but really the weight has a lot to do with it though too. Um, there's a lot of science behind yeah. like the weight of these molecules that I'm not going to get into because it is over my head. <laughs> so normally, right, there's only small amounts of albumin in urine without yeah. kidney disease. So when we do see like that increase in proteinuria, we, we want to kind of think about, you know, where is it coming from? Is it coming from the kidneys? Is there, you know, what kind of malfunction is going on? And we need to rule out because you want to make sure that, and we'll talk about this, is at some point you need to make sure that it's true proteinuria and not some of the other things that can cause proteinuria, but it's not, it's not disease related. It's just other things in the urine that look like protein. So yeah. we'll talk about that in a minute, but um. But when we do discuss like renal disease and function, there's two main conditions that can actually cause proteinuria. So glomerular barrier alteration. So again, this is where we're talking about changes in like the renal blood flow, like we talked about in the first uh, basics episode, like where congestive heart failure can cause that, um, which is actually termed a functional proteinuria because it's not clinically relevant and it can be transient. Um, yeah. Versus... And when we talk about blood flow, it's like, you know, do we have increased amount of volume of blood? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, again, the congestive heart failure. You may be seeing more fluid come through. Um, or... Which is where that like normal protein that spills over into the urine just is mm -hmm. excessive because you have more volume. Exactly. Right. Um, the more volume you have, the more in general, you'll have filter out of it. And then the other thing would be like, um, blood pressure from like anesthesia or mm -hmm. stress or all those things. So this is, you know, the renal blood flow is, is, is important when we're talking about. Yeah. Versus actual glomerular disease, which can result in like a more substantial protein urea, um, and it usually, again, consists of mostly albumin and just because it has a higher weight than all the other proteins, um, but it's allowed to leak through the glomerular barrier as glomerular, glomerular injury is more progressive, more and more, more and more proteins can come through, including those higher molecular weight proteins. Um, mm. And it does tend to get quite severe. So, and severe protein urea is typically due to that glomerular disease. So with heart failure, you can see like mild protein urea, but like if it's true glomerular disease or kidney damage, you're going to see pretty severe protein urea. Yeah. And, um, and again, it's progressive. It, in, unless, unless we slow things down, it's just, it's just going to keep getting worse. So like, you know, when, when my doctors talk about PLN, we really need to get on top of it now because unfortunately, just like with anything with the kidneys, once the damage is done, we can't really reverse it. So we need to stop where we're at, 
slow things down and make it so that disease slows the progression and not gets worse quickly because it can it can get it can get bad quick yeah so glomerular disease is like excessive filtration so there's more protein coming out of the, the glomerular filtrate into the urine versus tubular disease tends to be a problem with the resorption of mm. those proteins right and that um, totally makes sense so the glomerulus is letting a normal amount of protein into the loops of henley yeah and the tubules instead of not keeping them and putting them back in the bloodstream they're just like bah! and like letting them out and go into the collecting ducts and go out into the urine yeah exactly so they're not resorbing the normal like the freely filtered protein properly mm -hmm. um and the protein is normally resorbed in the proximal tubules um, which is why it's called tubular disease and then because we do not filter a lot of like low weight proteins normally the protein urea from tubular disease tends to be milder than that due to glomerular disease so again glomerular mm -hmm. disease is more severe disease um if a patient beginning like tubular disease will worsen the protein urea. Okay. So if a patient already has glomerular disease, right? So that allows more proteins and bigger proteins into the tubules. If we also have tubular disease, then we'll get even worse protein because now we're losing the big molecules and the small molecules mm -hmm. so it's if you know <laughs> you can have glomerular disease you can have tubule disease or you can have a combo of both which is sounds really horrible but the the combo of both is still treating mostly the glomerular disease true yeah um, just to try to reduce that albumin urea and help protect the tubules and the kidneys from more injury yeah. And albumin, again, this protein is not supposed to be in the tubules. So what happens is you have this giant protein just running around in the tubules and it actually can cause more damage and, and injure the tubules even further. So mm -hmm. it's, th that's why it's progressive, right? They're not supposed to be there. It, it's big and bulky. It causes problems. Um, so, um, and then if you have albumin that's, you know, filtered excessively because of the glomerular disease, you also have, um, you know, that, that resorbed albumin that we just talked about. Like if it's, if the tubules are actually resorbing them, you can actually get like a, um, it, this is a crazy word, tubulonephritis. So the, the tubules actually become inflamed and are upset. And then that causes secondary tubular disease. So again, there's, there's many ways this can happen. <laughs> and all We've already talked about how the, bad things. the kidneys are such a vicious like cycle. <laughs> like, yeah. You mess one thing up, you can mess everything up. Yep. <laughs> We're like, oh, cool. <laughs> so we can also, though, when we in our interpreting protein in the urine we also need to interpret like how concentrated the urine is by doing mm -hmm. a urine specific gravity so normal urine contains little protein um negative to trace is usually what we see in like concentrated urine and when we say concentrated urine we mean like greater than 1025 and when i say 1025 i mean 1.025 
Um, but you can see higher protein, like up to like two plus, and I'm talking like on a urine dipstick. Mm. Um, and that can be seen with like even higher or more concentrated urine. So greater than like 1030 and then super dilute urine should actually have no protein in the urine and even a trace, like a one plus in of protein in dilute urine can actually indicate excessive protein in the urine and that should be looked at. So if you're seeing, like if you're doing an in-house UA and you have a specific gravity of 1010 and you're getting one plus urine, it should be brought to the attention of someone that maybe looking into that protein in the urine, even though it's only a one plus or trace in dilute urine that can be excessive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super important to think about. Yeah. And, I, and, and the way I think about this, again, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but um, if you have a, if you have a infection, right, you mm-hmm. can actually see an increase in protein in the urine. So yep. the other thing that can happen with infection is um, because the body's smart this way, if you have a bladder infection or kidney infection, um, the patient or the animal will want to drink more to help dilute, to try to flush out the bacteria. Mm -hmm. So again, if we have dilute, dilute urine and we have protein, you know, that, that is definitely one of the things that should be looked at is, Hey, is there infection here? And you may need to do like a low colony count instead of a regular one. So it's just something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. If you see dilute urine and you see proteins, make sure that there's not an infection that's actually mimicking, you know, like protein true loss, yeah. protein loss in the kidneys. So, mm-hmm. and I mean, although we see, like we use protein urea as like a, a marker for glomerular or tubular disease, again, there can be other reasons for excessive protein in the urine. Um, so other causes for protein um, is that there can be excess protein in the plasma that are automatically filtered into the urine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can could actually... be like pets that have high protein diets. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I've seen overload like- protein area or pre-renal protein area. We've, we talked about pre-renal disease um, mm-hmm. and that tends to be like dehydration and, like, mm-hmm. um, and that an example is like high concentration of like free hemoglobin in the plasma from like a hemolytic anemia um, or intravascular like hemolysis can actually filter into the urine as well. Um mm-hmm urinary or reproductive tract inflammation or hemorrhage. So again, our UTIs, um, just cystitis, uh, I mean, reproductive like vaginitis or pyometra. Mm. Um, and that's also because like plasma proteins, not cells that's are, that are coming along with like the red blood cells or with the hemorrhage, um, can have like a, a protein component to them with inflammation and bacterial. Um, But note that the reproductive tract inflammation or hemorrhage is more likely to influence protein values in a free catch just because of it all coming out the same area. (laughs) Yeah. So you're not actually, (laughs) yeah, you're, you're not actually, you're seeing like serum proteins or plasma proteins. You're not seeing proteins that have been filtered through the kidneys. So PLN is actually like more common in our like dogs and versus cats. Um, 
but there are like a ton of dog breeds that are predisposed to this, which there was a really good chart and I'm going to share it in the show notes too. And I'm only going to run through a few of the breeds, but if you guys want to take a look at the chart, it's really, really cool because it tells you the breed, um, the type of PLM that they can have and mm. like what it can cause for that specific patient. So like our Sharpays can have um, amyloidosis mm-hmm. and then um, it'll tell you, I think there's like golden retrievers on there for glomerular disease and then other breeds would be tubular disease like kind of what they're predisposed to Mm. there's too many to list for this specific episode (laughs) but again check it out in the show notes um but typically patients with pln may initially be asymptomatic but again i that's a weird phrase to me because i think pln itself is a symptom of something (laughs) um yeah, but but I can see that that you know they're running around, they have protein in their urine, but they they don't act sick. Right? Mm-hmm. They they don't really notice it yet. Yeah, until it gets like super. I mean, we see a lot of the severe cases, but early signs of yeah. PLN <laughs> can actually include like weight loss and lethargy, mm-hmm. um, but severe proteinuria and like hypo hypoalbuminemia so low albumin in the blood Mm. and that can lead to ascites or peripheral edema which is what i see a lot like their legs are just swollen and i mean i don't know how many of our listeners have been pregnant but like i had edema when i was pregnant in my ankles and it was really (laughs) weird because i would like stick my finger on my skin and like push and it was the doughy thing yeah it was it was the craziest thing um (laughs) but that's not a common initial sign that that's severe. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, it is important to know though that renal failure is not necessary to diagnose PLN. Um, mm-hmm. Early recognition of PLN actually allows like for early intervention and can delay the onset of renal failure. And so many of our patients present only with when signs of renal failure or ure- uremia become apparent. So that's unfortunate. But Sometimes you can, we do, we have a couple patients that will specifically do like, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, but like we'll do a UA to look for most of the time because they're on certain meds, but we'll do a UA to rule out like a urinary tract infection because they're predisposed to that. But then we'll do a UPC if indicated, just to make sure that whatever medications we have them on are not causing damage to those kidneys. Um, but we'll do that for some of our, even like our chronic renal disease or early onset renal disease before it becomes a failure and that causes that ascites or edema because once it gets to that point it's it's pretty poor prognosis usually based on what i read yeah i'm not allowed to make prognosis <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah um so typically like when we do see that renal disease is getting worse and we kind of know what signs to look for. So we have our polyuria, polydipsia. Um, you can see anorexia, nausea, vomiting, like we do with a lot of our just I am cases. Yeah. All just I am cases in general. (laughs) It's like one of those things, like, like I said, when we do our diagnostics, we'll do like general lab work and a urinalysis and then a UPC if indicated, or we'll add on a UPC if we do see, like if the urine comes back with protein in the, in the urine. Um, because there's so many diseases that can actually like l- be on your differential list for protein in the urine. Because we kind of talked about it. If there's inflammation, kind of like anywhere within the body, um, or yeah. And I don't know. Do your does your doctor? Um, so my doctor will have us send home like a collection urine collection cup mm-hmm. um, to try. Well, not to try to get urine 
not the day of the exam because yeah, sometimes stress. the stress of the exam can cause protein levels to go up. There's, there's like a lot of reasons for it. Um, also we don't prefer to get like a cystocentesis sample mm-hmm. because if you have any blood contamination from the cysto that can also falsely like elevate your protein level. So we usually say, you know, three to four days after a visit, collect the urine, bring it to us and we'll submit it um, for a UPC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty common. So, I mean, like, again, we've already kind of talked about glomerular disease, glomerular nephritis, glomerular sclerosis, amyloidosis, those all fall under glomerular disease. Um, But you can also see like tick-borne diseases that can cause this. We kind of talked about like cystitis and pyometra. Infection, um, inflammation, <laughs> infection and inflammation just kind of across the board. Pancreatitis, because yeah. pancreatitis can kind of piss off the whole body. <laughs> like, right? just, yeah, exactly. Um, so those are, on, they should be on the differential list. Like we know that we need to rule out other things, um, but then keep the protein in the urine in the back of our mind. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, like, well, and a- there's, there's like a, also there's the whole genetic component to it Mm so um you know if you have a dog where you know relatives of you can see if anybody else in the family has it because there are definitely some breeds that they'll have um multiple animals with either in a in a litter or um you know, like parents or grandparents and stuff like that. So, you know, ideally if you're being a breeder and you're being a responsible breeder, if you see this in your line, you don't breed them further because. Yeah. Like Sharpay should always be checked for the protein in the urine just because it's such a common thing. Um, we kind of talked about what can cause false protein urea. So blood, um, uh, alkaline urine can sometimes cause like a false protein urea hmm. so that's like a ph of eight or greater so again it's one of those things where maybe you want to just recheck that urine on a different day or it could be diet related um again we kind of talked about how pre pre-renal protein urea can be a thing so dehydration and things like that can actually cause things to not be filtered as properly or there can just be excess protein in the blood um and then again, excess, like just blood being pumped throughout the body. <laughs> right. Um, and then intravascular hemolysis. Anytime there's blood in like a specific body system that shouldn't be there. So again, when there's like intravascular hemolysis, when we have some inflammation or infection within the urinary tract, that can cause some false protein urea. So there are some like tests that we do pretty frequently on these guys we kind of already talked about the urine dipstick uh i have a love-hate relationship with urine dipstick tests just because they're so like certain markers on the urine dipstick are very very reliable and then certain ones just aren't and then of course if you have like <laughs> our like myoglobin urea patients or any just bilirubin urea patients like the dipsticks just aren't good because it the color of the urine itself is not allow the dipstick ah, to actually gotcha. like, yes. Yeah. Um, so we talked about highly concentrated urine can have false protein in it, but, um, there's a test on here that I've 
never heard of, and maybe it's just because it's me, but it's, I guess it's called an SSA test, sulfasalicylic acid turbidometric I, testing. Like I've never, I've never heard of this test or done this test. <laughs> I've heard of it, but, um, I, uh, I don't know if I've done one. Interesting. Um, and then there's micro, microalbuminuria testing. Mm-hmm. That I've always learned was kind of unreliable. Maybe I'm wrong on that, um, but it it is what it sounds like. It detects like small amounts of albumin in the urine at a level that like wouldn't be standard like on a urine dipstick. It's not necessary for animals with overt proteinuria. So I don't know what would unless you're looking for something, I guess it would be good for those patients that you suspect proteinuria before it shows up positive on a urine dipstick. Because if you have microalbuminuria and it tests for small amounts of albumin in the the urine, you're looking for it before it shows up positive on a urine dipstick. Because once it's on a urine dipstick, then that's like a good amount of protein in the urine. I wonder if that's something where if you have like one of those breeds that's yeah. predisposed to it like that you like a sharpay you're just trying to catch it like super yeah. early which would yeah which would make sense so um i guess yeah. according to my research a low positive test um that like should be monitored um and it should just kind of continue to be monitored until it's no longer stable and then a high positive test can actually progress and increase to like normal protein urea um and that should mm. prompt um just additional testing the test that i use most frequently is a urine protein creatinine ratio um it is I mean, like, unless there's like a obvious reason for the protein urea. So again, like we'll do a urine culture before we'll do a UPC. A lot of, (laughs) but a lot of times we'll monitor UPCs, like if they're in like the normal to low normal range or the normal range to like a low abnormal range. Um, Or if obviously if the protein is getting worse. So say we're doing like, urinalysis and then it's like it's normal concentration urine but we're getting like a one plus protein on our samples we'll do a upc and then we'll just kind of monitor the upc over the next couple months just to make sure that it's not worsening Mm. um however in like our patients with chronic kidney disease if that upc value is over like 0.4 and i think this depends on what book you read um it, it should be warranted to actually like treat and do something about those numbers. Yeah. And I think part of that is because if you've got chronic kidney disease, that means you're not concentrating anyways. Yeah. Like so you know that there's already damage. In if there. you have a higher number, then that's bad. Like it, that means there's, if, if we were concentrating, it'd be even higher of a number. If that yeah. Cause sense. we learned already so. that higher um, concentration urine or more concentrated urine is going to have more protein in it. And I think, um, didn't the iris yeah, it guidelines talk yeah. about UPC? Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it is important when we're talking about our kidney patients. Um, so this can be 
you know, a good way to monitor. Yeah, we them. do UPCs in pretty much every every kidney patient that comes through the door if it's not already done. And then it usually goes in our recommendations when they go back to their general practice vet to monitor the UPC throughout yeah. their care. Um, so that way, if it needs, if medications need to be adjusted, they can be. Um, so there are, I read some information on like doing renal biopsies for protein in the urine. Oh my God, I hate renal biopsies. We've They're never so done scary. one. It should not be done <laughs> if there is coagulopathy disease um, or coagulopathic diseases. Right. There's special staining that can be done. And like it'll, I guess from what I was reading, it sounds like it can like measure like electrons. It, it, I don't know because I'm not a pathologist. On what specifically looking for? Oh, the electron microscopy. Yeah. Microscopy. Yeah. So the, they're looking at the like, like the electrical el charge, tiny electron molecular. Yeah. And level. I know they're doing special staining um, to, to, to look yeah, at and they're doing special yeah. staining to see like if there really is like glomerular damage to that like filtration system. It's crazy. It's above my pay grade again. <laughs> like, yeah, we've we've done a couple of them and they and we usually have like a special like kit that we get from the lab and it's not our regular lab. Um like I think I've done I've helped with like two of them before. Um but yeah, it's 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 pretty intense and we we try not to do it. Well, I mean, it to. seems like like if you already have moderate to severe renal disease, like doing a renal biopsy isn't going to really change any outcomes. So yeah. treatment though, um, we kind of briefly like mentioned how diets can actually affect protein in the urine. So protein restriction um, can actually decrease the amount of the, the protein loss in the urine. Um, and basically mm -hmm. what it does. Because there's less protein in yeah, the system. Yeah, to be filtered with, out. So, so <laughs> especially if you're dealing with like say you're like stage one renal disease, if you're just going to start off mm. with restricting that protein quantity and like just doing like a higher quality protein, then you're mm -hmm. setting the kidneys up for success. I mean, kind of yeah. slower failure, <laughs> like not really success. Yeah. I guess remember we were kind of talking about that. If you've got the proteins that are spilling out, those large molecules are causing yeah. damage. And so if we decrease the amount of protein, you know, and this is, this is all due to like bioavailability, right? So if we have proteins that have a higher bioavailability, then the body needs less protein, but the, but it uses mm -hmm. it better. So you know, less of it, but it's more, it's more like a higher mm -hmm. quality. It's, mm, it's that like say. conversion to energy versus being filtered through the blood. Like yeah. it's, it's using it for a purpose to make the body function versus filtering it out and then trying to pull it back in. Because again, like the more protein exactly. that you are, that gets filtered out and then tries to get filtered back in, like those say we do have that damage to the glomerular glomeruli and then like those holes that those large proteins are going through each time a large protein goes through there it's making that hole a little bit bigger and then soon multiple proteins are going through there yeah 
A lot of times we will start patients on ACE inhibitors. So like our drugs, like enalapril, um, and this is, it's been proven to decrease proteinuria, but it has like one of those like very fine lines to walk before it can like cause more damage. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and what it does is it, it helps decrease like renal blood flow. So like we're decreasing that blood pressure going through those kidneys and going through those glomeruli. Um, but again, we need to be careful when we do things like that because it's such a fine line. If you have two, we don't want to get below the minimum exactly. blood pressure amount because that causes kidney damage. So it's like, you know, we, we want it in that. Sweet exactly. Spot. <laughs> exactly. And then, so it is important when we, when we have patients on ACE inhibitors, like enalapril, we want to recheck chemistry panels. Kind of depends on if we start the medication or if the regular vet starts the medication, but typically it's recommended to recheck that kidney panel within like the first week to two, to two weeks after starting therapy. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So that way, like if dose adjustment needs to happen, it can. Um, yeah. But again, these are that medication isn't only reserved for patients who have high blood pressure. Like it can be used in our normal normotensive patients as well as our high blood pressure patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but blood pressure should be monitored because again, if we're treating for that, then we want to make sure that when a pa- patient comes in who's on this medication, they don't come in with a blood pressure of like 80. <laughs> you're like, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> but you're like, well, that's here with them all worked up yeah. and stressed out. So <laughs> right, and stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. What are they at home? Yeah, um, exactly. There, I was, there's no, for amyloidosis, there is no real effective treatment. Um, yeah. And then when we do have a hospitalized patient, we, there's all the fluid therapy can be used, but it needs to be cautiously monitored. So like our colloids, like mm-hmm. our head of starch that we use, um, we use it for blood pressure <laughs> and just really like kind of replenishing versus our crystalloids like saline or we use Normasol. I don't know if you use that versus like lactated ringers. I think we're using, we had Normasol for a while. Now we have Isolite, but it, yeah, it's, it's essentially yeah. the same thing. Um, it's a crystalloid and, and the reason why they're saying, you know, we may want to substitute these colloids for part of the crystalloids because again, remember your colloids are larger Mm -hmm. molecules. So instead of putting in a small molecule fluid, that'll just leak out into the peripheral space, having that larger molecule hopefully keeps the fluids in the blood vessels and not leaking out, which would cause yeah, because that can issues. cause the peripheral edema. Now, yeah, and these may be patients, you know, depending on how low the albumin gets, you know, they may be they may need a transfusion, like a, mm-hmm. a plasma transfusion. Now, again, we're we're not doing that lightly because that is going to make the kidneys work a little bit harder. So usually we don't start right away with it, but if a patient's really struggling, it may be that we do those colloids to help pull some of the fluids out of the sub Q space and back into uh, the blood vessels. Now, having Mm -hmm. said that, you know, sub Q fluids 
in a patient that's hypoalbuminemic is pointless <laughs> most of the times because the the concentration the higher concentration of proteins and colloids and stuff like that in the bloodstream compared to sub-Q fluids and interstitial space that is what causes that sub-Q fluids to become absorbed so if you have a patient that you know does not have a high concentration of protein in the blood vessel you know and you've got like a homeostasis going on between sub-Q fluids and what's in the bloodstream then the sub-Q fluids are just going to stay there. They're not going to get absorbed. So that's really something to kind of think of, like when you're like, oh, this patient looks dehydrated. Well, yes, in their blood vessels, they're dehydrated, so they need fluid, IV fluids. Sub-Q fluids aren't going to work for them. So it's just one of those things to kind of keep in mind. Yep. I think a caution, like some a nice interesting fact that I read, but I think deep down I knew, um, so a lot of these PLN patients do have mm. hypertension. It, about 50 to 85% of dogs, because cats don't seem to have PLN as often as dogs. Um, so Which is with crazy. our hypertension yes. dogs with PLN, we tend to find that like hypercoagulability is pretty high, um, which mm. I thought was interesting because urine... so. Within the urine, there's like a natural like anticoagulant, antithrombin, which we talked about antithrombin in the coagulopathy mm. episode. And um, mm-hmm. it it's lost more in the urine, I guess, with hypertension and PLN. Um, so that can actually mm. contribute to thromboemboli, thromboemboli form, forming within the pulmonary vasculature. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that you just kind of lose your ability to break down clots yeah and i mean these these are good patients to check their coagulations on like if you have um a teg or a vcm which in the coagulopathy episode yeah was it in that episode we talked about them those so not all clinics at all are gonna have this but if you work in a specialty practice um, because that's the like the viscoelastogram, which is going to look at how quickly does a clot form, how quickly does it break down. So you know, if if you have a PLN patient, you may want to check those numbers to figure out, okay, am I putting them on something like um, clopidogrel mm-hmm. or aspirin or something like that, and then you would recheck them you know, can we back off on it or do we need to keep going? So, you know, it, it is one of those because they're hyper or hyper coagulable. We just need to be careful too, like, um, with how we yeah. handle them, how we do blood draws. I think my doctor has things, like, so. he has like a threshold, like when they're albumins below a certain number, like he puts all of them on, like, I feel like it's like one yeah. or something like, he, like that. Yeah, I think yeah he knows that they're too. like more likely to throw clots, so he always puts some sort of anti-clotting medication, um, which mm-hmm. I didn't, I guess I knew that we did that, but I guess I didn't know it was because they lose their antithrombin. So it was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I learned something. I love when we learn things. We're like, yeah, Yay, that's cool. Like, that's why we do that. <laughs> It's the tip of the week. 
So tip of the week, this one's, um, we, we haven't touched on it at all in this episode, but blood draws, right? If you have a patient with peripheral edema and you need to do a blood draw on them, <laughs> um, if you've ever tried to get blood from a dog with severe PLN or PLE, either one, um, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to find that blood vessel. So one of the tricks that, that I use will, um, is to help smoosh the interstitial fluid out of the way. So what I will do is, um, I, I like them on their sides cause I do a lateral, um, uh, blood draw. And then I will actually take mm -hmm. a vet wrap and starting at the toes, put like a, a fairly tight bandage starting at the toes and working my way up. Um, and I kind of let that sit there for like, I don't know, a minute. And so what happens is the compression from the vet wrap will actually like push the fluids out of that area. And then you have to work quickly though. <laughs> so then what happens is once you see that the leg swelling has gone down, right? You quickly unwrap it or you cut the vet wrap. And then you should be able to see the blood vein or the blood vein, the blood vessel at that point and be able to get your, your sample and draw. Um, so if like, especially too, if you're placing an IV catheter in these patients, you know, it may be similar where you put a wrap on it first so you can visualize the vein. The one thing that's really important to remember with these guys, though, if you are placing a catheter, is the the tape. You need to make it mm -hmm. fairly loose um, and put, like, those little squish, like, stick it to itself. So the if the leg expands because of swelling that, you know, we're not cutting off circulation with, with tape. So, um, compression is a, is your friend while placing, it is not going to help you <laughs> with long-term catheter maintenance. But, um, so the tip of the week is, is using some compression to be able to find the blood vessel and get your blood sample. If you need to do that on a patient that is, um, hypoalbuminemic. And now for the question of the week. So I think for the question of the week, I'm going to follow Yvonne's lead on her Facebook post of, do you have any personal experience with chronic kidney disease? So question of the week this week is, do you have any personal experience with PLN? I guess I don't like personally, but I do have several patients that like come to mind that I'm like, you make me remember this disease, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. I think, I think if you work in IM you'll have those patients that you're like, oh yeah, that dog with PLN. And you just, you picture yeah, them right away. Exactly. You're like that one. Like um, I have those patients yeah. that I'm just like, you came in with ascites, peripheral edema, but you are still like happy, go lucky and like wagging your tail. Mind you, I think the one that I'm currently speaking of had PLE instead, but <laughs> it's so, so similar. similar it's just the gut leaking versus <laughs> the kidney leaking. <Yeah>. So exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, but let us know what your experience is with uh, PLN, um, and if if you have any tips for dealing yeah. with these patients, um, that's always a good one. And then the one big thing that we wanted to talk about again this week, we've we've used this website numerous times. And I think we talked times, about it last week that we're like, but, there's no way eClinPath doesn't have <laughs> information on us. 
Yes, we did. We did talk about it last week. We were like, eClin path, they must have a urinalysis section. They sure do. <laughs> and it's pretty awesome. So definitely look at it's it's the Cornell University um mm -hmm. eClin path. Uh I think it's eclinpath.com. Um it's again, it's an amazing a lot website. Of good we get tons yeah, of information they have from them. A lot them. of good information yeah. in general. And then I'll put the rest of our resources cuz like I said I found a really cool chart. There's a lot more information. Like if you're super interested in like the electrical charge of things, um, mm. or if you, there's a lot more information on like specific treatments, I guess that I didn't get into. Yeah. It was a lot more like doctory stuff. So I was trying to pull the stuff that would be easy, easier for me to understand <laughs> right yeah because i mean we don't we don't need to understand it on a doctor level but we do need to understand it on a level that we can talk to our clients about it right exactly and, so, and i like being able to explain kind of what's happening in the kidneys but without getting too much into the i do find <laughs> don't get the, into the weeds <laughs> yeah i do find the electrical charge like super fascinating but it's just there's so much that i can't remember it then i get frustrated that i can't remember it exactly <laughs> and then i'm yeah. like Wait, which is positive and which one's negative? Like, I think. <laughs> I can't remember that stuff. Like, I, I appreciate chemistry, but. Um, I wish I could because I do like it, but I'm not good at it. So then I don't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. Yep. I understand. If yeah. that doesn't explain like me to a T. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think that's a VTS thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of like good proceedings and stuff out there that I got yeah. some of our information from that I'll share in the show notes as well. Um, but if you have any questions, concerns, want to add to anything that I talked about, please let me know. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. All right, guys. Um, make sure, you know, make sure to sign up for the wait list. If that's something you want to do. Uh, if you leave a review, please let us know. So we can get stickers to you. Cause again, I have a ton of stickers and I want to send them to you. Um, and we, we love, we love and appreciate the reviews that we're getting. So if it's helping, thank you. <laughs> thank you for letting us know that it, it's helping you guys. Um, and I think, uh, we have one. Oh, wait, is next week is next week, Laura. Next week is Laura. <gasps> you guys, this is so exciting. So next week, we have a special guest that's going to be on the show, which we're super excited about. Um, you guys probably know who she is because we share her we've, on our Facebook page. We've talked about her a lot, <laughs> like in general. <laughs> she's very, she's one of my good friends that I tested with. Um, she runs the Veterinary Internal Medicine Nursing. Yeah. Page. Veterinary Internal Nursing page. And it's nursing because... She's, She's in the, the UK. UK and she just got elected to a board over there. She, she's going places this lady and we're going to have her on our podcast next week. I'm so yes. Bad. I'm pretty sure it was just her birthday too. So happy belated birthday. I think it was oh, in June. Yeah. It was in June. That's right. It was her birthday. Yeah. So happy belated birthday, Laura. I'm sorry <laughs> that I'm about a month late now, but <laughs> <laughs> she may forgive you, Jordan, just a little yeah. bit, <laughs> but we're super excited because she'll be on next week and we're going to be talking about fluted. fluted. 
Yes, the dreaded fluted. We made her come in for fluted. <laughs> I'm happy that she's doing that though, because that is not a me thing. Like, I mean, like I can look it no. up. I mean, I get it, but I, uh, I don't enjoy it. it like I, I enjoy it. Is, it is miserable fluted. Because it's also like a fine balance of yeah. drugs. <laughs> like, yeah. So and cats. I love cats, but they're pains. Definitely tune in to listen to Laura because she's wonderful and she has like just a beautiful accent in general that I just could listen to all day. Like right? I could just talk to her all day. <laughs> we're we're gonna sound so like she sounds not cool compared to her. Yeah, like she's. <laughs> She sounds so sophisticated when she talks anyway, because she's just like a naturally like smart person. Yeah. And so she might just take care of the show. Uh-oh. Anyways, right? stay tuned for next week to see if she takes over the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Have a wonderful week. Make sure to get your learn on and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.